few years ago, we did a, a series called If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. And that series was authored by a Christian writer and pastor called John Ortberg. And there was once um, a time, from several times, I'm sure, whenever John Ortberg, he felt very, uh, I suppose, stressed out about um, his you know, sort of family life and working life and, and really uh, just felt severely overstretched. So he, he phoned his mentor, uh, Dallas Willard, and said to him, um, Dallas, what do I need to do to live a spiritually healthy life? And he had with him this sort of pen and paper by the phone, and uh, there's a long pause, and then uh, the late, great Dallas Willard said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So John wrote this down and then said, great, great, I've got that. What else? And there's a long pause. And Dallas said, there is nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is, is an inner spiritual brokenness. The outworking of hurry is over busyness. In today's society, we have made a virtue out of over busyness, but actually, its cause is spiritual brokenness. Another Christian author, John Mark Comer, was once asked, Can you summarize the lifestyle of Jesus in one word? And the answer that he gave, I thought initially, was a really surprising one. But I understand, I think, what he's getting at. He said, relaxed. Jesus was relaxed. Now, I think quite often we hear the word relaxed. I don't know, some of you may be old enough to remember the Cadbury's Caramel ad where there was this sort of cartoon bunny who lay under a tree with this lovely, smooth voice telling everyone to take it really easy, sort of a hippie, hippie bunny, um, you know, popping Cadbury's caramel in. Didn't have a great figure because basically just sat there all day, you know, popping Cadbury's caramel in. And the sense of that word relaxed then is sort of basically, I've got nothing to do and all the time in the world to do it. But I don't think that's what John Mark Comer meant. I think he meant relaxed and purposefully relaxed, purposeful. This morning we're going to look at how do we simplify our lives in terms of time? Is it a constant refrain in your life that you don't have enough time? Do you feel overstretched? There's far too many things to do. The amazing thing about what Scripture tells us is that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, God has prepared in advance all the good things he wants us to do, and there's enough time to do all those things. So Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and a right relationship with him, and you'll find that you'll, ha you'll be given everything that you need, and that includes enough time. Last week we looked at the fact that we need to simplify the stuff in our lives, live a simple life in terms of stuff. Today, living a simple life in terms of time, and next week, simplicity of speech. And it's all about discovering the fact that with God, less is more. 
And this is really, really important for us because we live in a society that believes that more is more. And the way of Jesus Christ is exactly the opposite of that. The way of Jesus Christ is that less is more with God. So when it comes to time, the pressures upon us in society are these. And this is something that's a real driver in modern Western society. It's a misconception that our purpose for living is to consume as much product and to have as many experiences as possible that we can pack into our lives. Go on as many holidays, see as many sights, have as many trips, have as many highs, consume as many products, and what happens? We rape creation, we wreck the planet, and we end up utterly exhausted. With Jesus, less is more. We're called to live a simple life. We're called to lead a life exactly the opposite of the way the world is choosing to live it. Because the world is driven by FOMO, the fear of missing out. The pressure of society upon us is FOMO. Social media drives it. Ads on TV drive it. All sorts of things drive it. And there's that sense of my life is incomplete if I do not experience what other people are experiencing. And that creates more and more hurry in our lives. And hurry is brokenness. How do we live like Jesus? How do we live in a way where we discover that we have enough time including time to rest. The reason why we're looking at these spiritual exercises of, of fasting and simplicity is that they're, they're spiritual exercises of abstinence. There are two types of spiritual exercise. There's abstinence, which is voluntarily, purposefully choosing to not have certain things and not do certain things that are available to us. Fasting is similar. It's about abstinence. It's about foregoing something that we could have. There are also spiritual exercises of engagement, like worship, where we come together every Sunday together to sing our hearts out to God, to hear Scripture read, to look each other in the eye and shake hands, to pray to God and bring before Him our needs and the needs of the world. And that is a spiritual exercise of engagement. It takes effort. Probably all of us think when we wake up, oh, I could just lie in bed all day. But whether they're ex exercises of engagement or abstinence, the reality is this, they all have the same purpose, and that is to be more like Jesus Christ, to draw closer to our Heavenly Father. So how can we do that? Well, that's why we went back to Genesis. The verses that Stephen read today are, the story of it, how it all began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In other words, the writer of Genesis is saying to us, God made everything from top to bottom. But you know, when he made it, he made it that it was initially formless and empty. 
It can also be translated barren and uninhabited. And then we read the wonderful account of how God sets to work to fill his creation with life. All sorts of variety of life and seeds and plants and greenery and, and seas and land and animals and birds and eventually mankind. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then a few verses on in Genesis 2, 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. This wonderful picture of God who is at work, filling up creation with variety and abundance and life. And then he makes human beings to be just like him in his image, to be creative work doers who also join with him in filling up the earth with life and abundance and variety and using the creative gifts they've been given. It's a wonderful picture of being co-workers with God in his creation. And we've seen all sorts of wonderful results in this. We've seen Wonderful results in education and agriculture and architecture and uh, commerce and all sorts of different ways where human beings have engaged in their, using their creative gifts to bring the world in its formlessness and barrenness and emptiness and to be with God filling up creation with variety, to bring chaos into order. To live in the image of God and to rule over everything on the earth. Now, the thing is about Genesis is that most of the civilizations of the ancient Near East had their own stories of how it all began. So, at this time, people reading Genesis would have been aware of the fact that the Egyptians and the other civilizations, they had their own stories too of how it all began. But the contrast between Genesis and the other stories is this. The stories of the other nations tend to be stories in which there were lots of gods. There were a crowd of gods, a pantheon of gods, and they were involved in the work of creation, of bringing light and, and order out of chaos. And, and in these stories, what tended to happen was there were similar themes Eventually, the gods got tired of the work of creating. And so what they do? They created slave labor. And who was the slave labor? Human beings. And human beings had to do what the gods had got tired of doing. And because also it probably had great political convenience, the stories who were commissioned by kings and queens had this little detail in them. There was only one human being who was made in the image of God, and that was the one who was your king. Only the king knew how to communicate with God. Only the king knew how to rule and reign. Only the king could bring the blessings of God in heaven and impart them to his subjects on earth. And what was the job of the subjects on earth? It was to to get stuck in to what, what they were commanded to do because the gods had got tired of doing it. 
Do you see how radical the story of Genesis is? There is one true God. And you know what? He loves to work. He loves to create. That's the story of Genesis we heard read this morning. God is an architect. God is a planner. God is a designer. God is a filler. God is an artist. God is a scientist. God loves to create, love to shape, love to fill the earth with life and all of its fullness. And he said, be my partners to men and women. Rule the earth. Subdue it. Reign in the place that I have put you. And you know what? That is still God's command. That is still the purpose as to why we're here. And unlike the other creation narratives of the ancient Near East, all human beings are made in the image of God. Do you see how politically radical Genesis is? It's a democratization of entire society. It says every human being, man and woman, is made in the image of God. Every man and woman is a, is a king, is a queen. Everyone is given responsibility to rule and to reign. Everybody is made in the image of God. It's the radical nature this has as to how we treat other people, how we treat the environment. You and I are put here in order to help fill the earth with creativity, to create structures of architecture and ecology and agriculture and business. You and I are here to shape through music and science and art. You and I are here to create and to govern and to rule and to be a blessing to the whole of creation. This is a great and risky venture that God has embarked upon. Because the reality is you and I know as we read the Bible, as we read the newspapers, as we hear of a shooting in Pittsburgh, you and I know the results are mixed. All you have to do is read First and Second Kings in the Old Testament. Good king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king. The story of the Bible is this. Some have ruled well and some have ruled terribly. But actually, as Paul says in, in Romans 3.23, the reality is this, and you and I know it, in a, in a place where we know the pollution is rife in the world, we can look back and look at the Jewish Holocaust, millions of people butchered in concentration camps and gas chambers. The Bible tells us, Paul tells what we already know, that every single human being, bar one, has fallen short of the glory of God. And so in Romans chapter 5, Paul says this. Adam, the first man, was only a signpost to the man who was to come. As N.T. Wright says, Jesus Christ is the, Adam, Adam is the advanced prototype of the one who was to come. And who is the one who is to come? Who is the final Adam of 1 Corinthians 16? It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth the one man who lived an unhurried life. The one man who came to the end of his life in that place of crucifixion to show the love of God for the whole world, the one man who was able to say, it is finished. I have done everything that I was put on this earth to do. 
I have not missed one thing that I was put on this earth to do, nor have I done one thing extra that I wasn't meant to do. See, this problem of hurry in our lives is this. Unless we know who we are and we won't know why we're here. And if we don't know why we're here, we will continually seek to try to fill our time to do things with things that we were never meant to do. And we will miss the things that we were put here to do. In the ancient temples of civilization, and there are temples like this around the world today, each of those temples have, have icons. They have statues. And the word for idol and statue is the same in Hebrew, salem, as the word for image. The writer of Genesis is saying this to us. Every single human being is an idol in the temple of God, and the temple of the one true God is the whole creation. So, as worshipers, if we want to know what God looks like, then you look around you. Because the writer of Genesis is saying this, every single human being is an icon, a statue, an idol to tell us what God looks like. And our primary calling in life is this, to show the world what God looks like. It's only in Jesus Christ, as Paul says, that this is possible. So after he said those words that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he says this, and all are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Jesus has come and he has lived the one true human life. He has restored to humankind the image of God. In the Old Testament, we read of God speaking through the burning bush and, and from the cloud and in the still small whisper at the cave and there's all sorts of things and how God speaks to the prophets, to his people. But in the last days, the Bible tells us there will be a final word on human beings. And who is the final word? Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Finally, 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 there is someone who listens completely to the Father and does everything that he's called to do. And you and I gather today with over a billion people throughout the world today to say Jesus Christ is the man. And by the power of Christ, we have an opportunity to be like him. So the Bible tells us about Jesus living, dying for us, rising for us, ascending into heaven and being seated at the right hand of God. The last verses of Mark's gospel go like this. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to his disciples, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. The Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. 
Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? He's ruling over creation. Why did he go into heaven? To rule over creation. How is he ruling over creation? Through his church. Here is church, we're his church. We sometimes feel today that the church is periphery to the world. The truth of the gospel is this the world is periphery to the church. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says this, this is the message, paraphrase. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living. Part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that you, once you heard the truth and believed it, the message of your salvation, found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. His, this signet from God is the first installment of what's coming. A reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us. A praising and glorious life. And what was the first thing Jesus Christ did when he sat down at the right hand of God? He poured out his Holy Spirit. He poured out his Holy Spirit on those who are his disciples, his learners. Why? So that you and I also could be restored in the image of God. That you and I can rule and reign on earth in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. And what does that mean? It means as a, as a parent, as a volunteer, as a teacher, as somebody who works in an office or a building site. And whether we're past the, the age of work or not doesn't matter. The reality is, is this. We have spheres of influence we have those around us who are in our care, and that is true for us no matter what happens. I heard recently of a, a teacher in a special needs school, and every time, quite often, he is picking up uh, children whose bodies are, they can't stand, and he's, he's often, and, and what he does, he, he prays over every single one of them quietly as he picks them up. I heard of a, a, a group of hairdressers in Dungannon, and every morning before I go to a barber's, and barber's, there is no, as it were, list. You just walk in, you wait, and you get a bad haircut. But what happens, apparently, in a hairdresser's is you book ahead, and you go in, and they know who's coming. And this group of hairdressers in Dungannon, they get together every morning before they open their doors, and they pray to their entire list by name about everyone whose hair they're going to cut, set, and shampoo, and whatever else happens in a hairdresser's. And they pray quietly over every customer who comes in. Gordon MacDonald, a Christian author, tells the, the story of a, a bus driver who came to faith in Christ. I'll tell this one for you, Tom, just bus driver story. And a few weeks after this bus driver became a Christian, he said to him, how has becoming a follower of Jesus Christ affected how you live your life? And he said, well, 
his bus journey was through uh, Manhattan and he said, it used to be I just drove like everybody else. I was constantly on the horn, stopping and starting. I was just as aggressive as everybody else. But since I became a follower of Jesus Christ, I drive differently. I don't touch the horn. I drive calmly, quietly. I greet every passenger who gets on and I bless everyone who gets off. And he said, recently, as a woman was getting off the bus, she said to me, you know, your bus is a sanctuary for me. And he said, that's it. My bus is a sanctuary. If you're a parent at home, shaping the next generation, one of the most important jobs in the whole world, you have an opportunity to create a sanctuary for your children and for the next generation. If you're beyond working years and maybe describe yourself as retired, whatever retired means, you have all sorts of spheres of influence. You have wisdom. You have gifts that so many other people don't have. Those are to be shared and to use in the good governance of this earth. Wherever the spheres of influence God wants you to rule humbly and by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. We have reduced worship down to an hour on Sunday. We've reduced work down to a nine to five pursuit in which we try to work as few hours as possible for as much money as possible so that we can get off work and spend that money on the things that we think really matter. And we wonder why so many people are absolutely miserable. We wonder why people who have very large quantities of money, even if they're, if they're doing work they hate, ultimately they will be miserable. Because we have reduced work down to a broken American dream. The word for work and the word for worship in the Old Testament is the same word, abad. Our life is to be all about worship and our life is to be all about work. Because contrary to what the world, world says, the Bible says that's why we're here. We are here to shape and create and rule and govern in what way? Like Jesus Christ. The one who came not to serve, but to serve. Some lovely words from Romans chapter 12. I'll finish with these. These are again from the message translation. I think they sum up why we're here. So Paul says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God has done for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out without even thinking. Recognize what he wants from you. 
and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Here's the same verses from the NIV. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are being trained by the Holy Spirit to live a simple life like Jesus Christ. The only way we can know what to say no to and what to say yes to is by knowing who we are that we are divine image bearers created in the image of God to rule on earth today, to the glory of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you and I can only grasp hold of our identity, then we'll know exactly what to do every moment of every day. We will be like Jesus Christ, who unrelentingly moved in the rhythms of grace and refused to step outside the rhythms of grace that God the Father had created for him. And you and I, in whatever spheres of influence we have, in our family, in our workplace, wherever it happens to be, will know exactly what to do and exactly what to say. And as the Bible says, when we do that, that creation itself will give thanks to God. Because the Bible says, do you know what the whole of creation is crying out for? Do you know what the whole of creation is groaning over? For the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. What does that mean? For human beings to start ruling the way God created them to rule.